to the choir master of David. This is what the word of God has to say. In the Lord, I take refuge. How can you say to my soul, flee like a bird to the mountain? For behold, the wicked bend the bow. They have fitted their arrow to the string to shoot in the dark at the upright in heart. If the foundations are destroyed, who can, what can the righteous do? The Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. His eyes see, his eyelids test the children of God. The Lord tests the righteous, but his soul hates the wicked and the one who loves violence. Let him rain coals on the wicked. Fire and sulfur and scorching wind shall be the portion of their cup. For the Lord is righteous. He loves the righteous. He loves righteous deeds. The upright shall behold his face. The book of Psalms, all of them, contains cries for help. Some that are joyful worship celebrations. Some that are uh, deep felt thanksgiving. They, uh, they, they are often connected to, when we read them, deep felt experienced emotions. We often turn to the Psalms when our emotions are great and we're looking for help in expressing ourselves before God. Many of you have used the, the book of Psalms to help you pray. Praying the Psalms is a way to, to help you express yourself before the Lord. While this is certainly appropriate and good, we should be mindful that every word of Scripture is first and foremost not about us, but about God. When scripture speaks, its first intention, its primary intention is to declare and, and make known who God is. As such, when we read the Psalms, it's an important discipline for us to first look for what it is saying about who God is before making applications for us and for man. And I think certainly Psalm 10 last week and Psalm 11 this week are are in that vein of importance that, that we're tempted to, to, to go quickly to what this psalm has to say about us. In the first opening verses of the psalm, David says he's in trouble. His counsel is that he's been told to flee and he's gonna, he takes his refuge in the Lord. And so already setting up this, this difficulty. Now we don't know the particulars, but all of us in this room have had moments of trouble. We can identify with that. And there's a temptation for us to say, okay, what does this have to say for us when we're in a time of trouble? Where there's a, certainly a time that where that's appropriate and right, we first must ask the question, what does this Psalm say about God? This is a Psalm of David, but like I've already said, it's a, the, the situation to which David is writing about or writing from or in is unknown. From the first two verses, we learn that he is being threatened by evil persons and apparently has received the, the counsel uh, to, to flee for his safety. If you'll, if you'll look in the opening words there of the psalm, it says, um, how can you say to my soul, flee like a bird 
to my mountain. In other words, get out of town for your own safety sake. And the Bible does record several times when David's life was threatened. When he served as a young man in the court of Saul, you may remember that his life was was often threatened by the king, eventually requiring David to flee for his own life. Um, Saul was regularly threatening uh, David and he openly suggested to his court and to his family in 1 Samuel chapter 19 that, that David should be killed, that he should be murdered and essentially putting a price upon David's head. David was forced to flee into the wilderness and he hid out for about 10 years uh, from, th- from the chasing of Saul and his murderous threats. Later, when David was king and his kingdom was well established, his own son Absalom would attempt a coup and attempt to overthrow his father's kingdom. Absalom would raise up an army and march on the capital, Jerusalem, requiring David to flee his own capital city under threat from his own son. So David certainly knows that the reality and sometimes the need for fleeing. And it's interesting to note that, that whether to flee or not flee is not prescribed here in the sense that it's not always bad or always good. Certainly God was in when he was uh, under Saul's kingship. And, 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 and even when Absalom was attacking his kingdom, God was in those moments, provided for him miraculously and wonderfully in, the, in those moments. But, but in this situation, and, and uh, whatever the occasion was for this situation, David was led by the Lord not to flee from whatever was threatening his life, but rather he trusted his life and his well-being right where he was in the Lord. He says in the opening words of the psalm, in the Lord I take refuge. In other words, my well-being, my safety, my everything, I'm trusting, entrusting to the Lord. This psalm is not about David's bravery, his wisdom, his tenacity, or his leadership. This psalm is about who God is. The division of the psalm is in two parts. It begins with a statement and a question which is part one, that'd be verses, that'd be verses one through three, and, and, then, a, uh, and then, with, um, then followed by a testimony of who God is. So David asked the, or he makes a statement, I, I, my refuge is in the Lord. How can you tell me to flee? And then from four to the end of the chapter, to the end of the psalm, David declares the, the nature, the character, the, the glory, the holiness of God. The first part is a declaration of faith. In the Lord, I take refuge. The the evidence of this faith is that David rejected the suggestion that he should flee like a bird to his mountain. But the second part is verses four through seven, which is a testimony of who God is. And that's where I want to give the majority of our attention this morning as we think about who God is. And three things I want you to see from from this psalm. Number one, God is holy, God is working, and God is righteous. Let's begin with verse four. God is holy. David begins in verse four, the second part, in declaring who God is. And he simply says, the Lord is in his holy temple. 
The Lord's throne is in heaven. His eyes see, his eyelids test the children of man. Friends, sometimes when life is difficult and you're in a bad spot, it's important, it's needed, it's necessary to preach to yourself. And what I mean by that is sometimes you need to declare to your own heart what you know to be true about God. Now, we don't know the situation that David is going through, but, but we, it, I think it's a safe assumption to, to make that he's anxious, that he's nervous, that he's scared, that he's worried, all those things that, that, that are a part of our heart and mind when threats come that we don't know how we're going to answer them. Maybe it was an external threat, an enemy out to get him. But friends, it could have been anything. It could have been a, an internal threat. It could have been palace intrigue. It could have been a, a decline in health. It could have been any sort of thing that, that was threatening him and, and causing him this, 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 this desire to, uh, the natural desire to, to flee, to run away. And then he says, my, my refuge is in the Lord. And why is his refuge in the Lord? Well, he begins in verse four with a declaration. My God is holy and he's on his throne. He's preaching to himself. He's declaring what he knows about God to be true, to be true. Verses four, five, six, and seven are why David declares in verse one that he takes refuge in the Lord. His hope and assurance of God's provision and ability to provide for him is not wishful or fanciful thinking. He's not saying, well, I hope I can make it. His hope is founded on the truth of who God is. I, I, my, I put my refuge, I take my refuge in the Lord because he's on his throne, because he's in his holy temple. In verse four, David declares that God is in his holy temple and, and on his throne. Now this is not to say that God is physically limited to a place. David's not saying here, well, God is in a location in the sense that he's limited like you and I are to a location. One of the realities of being a, in a physical body is I can only be at one place at one time. If I'm here, I'm not there. And if I'm there, I cannot be here. That's not what he's saying about the living God. He is communicating that God is in control. For a king to be on his throne was to say that he was unchallenged in his authority. When the authority of a king was challenged by a usurper, the first line of attack was to remove the king from his capital. That's why Absalom marched on Jerusalem. If you want to topple a king, you got to topple his capital. You've got to remove him from the throne. David experienced this when his own son attempted to kill him and take his kingdom. Second Samuel chapter 15 tells us that David had to flee his own capital city. When, 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 Absalom, forces when Absalom forces began to advance on the city, he understood that the authority of kings in this world may be challenged and in doubt, but the authority and the rule of God are eternal and forever. And he sits eternally and unchallenged on his throne in his holy temple. But notice too, David says, he sits on his throne in his, and here's the word he uses, holy temple. The word there that is translated as holy simply means to be apart, sacred, separated from, unlike the rest. Friends, God's throne is not in a place made by hand. 
God's throne is not a seat made of stone and wood. It's not something that can be stolen or broken. It's not something that can be moved or removed. God's throne is in his holy temple. He is set apart. He is sacred. He is sanctified. He is consecrated. He is holy. And to be holy is to be other. God is not like men. In other words, what David is saying is God is God. Holy in his temple, seated on his throne, in a control and in authority over all things. I take my refuge in the Lord. He is on his throne. And secondly, he says, from his throne, he sees. Look at what he says. His eyes see. His eyelids test the children of men. David would have been familiar with the pagan idols of the people that surrounded Israel. When I was in college, I had an opportunity. I was taking a class on world religions. We actually went to a, a Hindu temple that had gods in the, in the room. And as I stood before those, those carvings of stone, they had painted eyes, but those stones could not see me. They were unaware that I was in the room. It was just stone. But David says, God who is on his throne, he sees. He's aware. When wicked men cannot deny the existence of God, they will often deny the, the presence of God. I spoke last Sunday from Psalm 10 on functional or practical atheism. That is to live as though there is no God, as though there, is, there will be no judgment of sin. Here David declares with hope that not only is God holy and in control, but he also sees he's not absent from us. His authority and his control, his majesty, his holiness does not keep him from being aware of us. No, he is God on his throne in his holy temple, but at the same time he sees, he knows what's going on in your life. The holy God whose power and authority are unchallenged sees and knows. Now, friends, I want to tell you something. When trouble comes, when trouble comes, it is easy to believe the lie that you're all alone. That's a lie from Satan. When trouble comes, when the attacks come, when the wicked come after you, it's easy to listen to the lie. I am all in this all by myself. There is no help from anyone else. David says, I take my refuge in the Lord because he's on his throne in his holy temple and he sees. David finds refuge in the Lord knowing that God is not distant or unaware but knows his present trouble. You see, the presence of the Lord gives hope and assurance when the wickedness of the world seems so strong. In Psalm 139, it says, where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I, shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall overcome and the light about me be night, even the darkness is not dark to you. 
The night is bright as the day, for darkness is as light to you. You know what the psalm is saying? God, you're everywhere. Praise God, you're everywhere. There's nowhere I can go that you don't know where I am. Now listen to me, friend. You may be in a bad spot right now, and you may be sitting in your pew convinced that nobody in this room knows the trouble that you know, that nobody in this world knows the trouble that you know, and that you're all alone. But hear me, the God who sits on his throne in his holy temple sees you today, and he knows your heart. And there's nowhere you can go, there's nowhere you can hide that the Lord does not see you and know you. For those who know the Lord, that is one of the most precious truths of all times. God is holy. Then in verse 5, David declares God is working, actively working. He says in the last phrase of verse 4, his eyelids test the children of man. And then in verse 5, he says, the Lord tests the righteous, but his soul hates the wicked and the one who loves violence. God is testing the righteous. Now this is more than simply being aware of your trouble. David declares in verse five that God is actively working both for the righteous and against the wicked. And he says in verse five that God tests the righteous. The word there that is translated test means to examine, to prove, to try. And the word test for you and I is probably most often, most familiarly connected to education pursuits. And as a result of that, because when you hear the word test, you hear classroom, class, education, teacher, exam, many of you do not have an, a positive association with test. Now, I just want to give you an insight into my life. I'm married a teacher, so I know that there are some of you who love school and love test, but that wasn't me. And some of you identify on my side of the ledger. Everything about education was a challenge. And so when you hear the word test, it doesn't make your heart rejoice with happiness. Come on now. In fact, if you're like me, you may have experienced tests in a negative context when somebody tested you in order to uh, see if you knew the material. Or all of us have had that experience where someone tested you for the sole purpose of tripping you up or, or causing you trouble. But I want you to hear what, what David means by this word. What David means with the word test in this passage is a positive one. It is absolutely positive. Here the word test means to prove what is true. To reveal what is already there. I, I've already said I, growing up I was not a good student. My teachers would write on my report card what a sweet boy I was, but never what a great student I was. But it's been interesting as an adult, now that my years of education are far behind me, I, I have had, as I pursued some new academic challenges in recent years that, that required testing, 
that I have found the experience in these recent days enjoyable. Enjoyable. I, I like the test. I enjoy the test. I, I look forward to the test. And reflecting on my newfound positive relationship with these tests, I, I recognize that the difference is in my, that in my current pursuits, I'm much more competent. I'm much more prepared than I was when I was coming up through school. When I was coming up through school, I would try to cram the night before, <laughs> which meant when the test came, I was just trying to squeak out a passing grade. It was revealing what I did not know, which meant that I didn't have a, a positive uh, perspective on the test. But when you know the material, when, you're, when, when you know, when you, when you have competence in the subject matter, tests are not negative, they're positive because they declare what is already there. They, they, they prove, they examine, they expose the reality that you indeed are competent, that you are indeed do know the material. This is the positive meaning of the word test in verse five. God will prove the righteous and he, will, he, and he will test to testify to the genuineness of righteousness. Listen to me carefully here. Thinking about the coming judgment of God. Some of you are hoping that by a miraculous turn of events, you're going to be able to squeak by the judgment of God. Somehow in a last minute cram session, you're going to be able to, to just get enough to pass the test. But listen to me, friends. It's an all or nothing reality. And God knows the truth of who you are. Nobody who's not righteous is tested by God and found righteous. So he says in this passage, he says, the Lord tests the righteous. In other words, he's proving and examining and testing those who are indeed righteous. The hopeful truth here is that God knows your heart and God knows who are his. But the second reality of this is that God opposes the wicked. He says, not only does he test the righteous, but he says, but his soul hates the wicked and the one who loves violence. You see, God knows who are his. It also means that he knows who are not his. David is clear that God hates the wicked. Now, I grew up like many of you being told that I should not hate anyone. And, and as such, the word hate generally sounds rather negative in our ears, even as something that ought not to be. That impulse to say, well, you ought not to hate anyone or anything is, is wells up when you hear God hates. Because of our sinful flesh nature, our hate generally does not flow from righteousness, but sin. And our hate generally is a, is a, is a cause for additional sin. However, God is righteous and even in his hatred, he is righteous. In other words, God righteously hates wickedness. And David recognizes this as a hopeful word. God hates and opposes the wicked. The wicked are not immune from the judgment of God. 
The wicked are not free from the rule of God. The wicked are not ignored or excused by God. I would remind you of, uh, of Psalm 10, where the question is, how does it seem, why does it seem like the wicked are going unopposed and, and unpunished? And David again in chapter, in, in Psalm 11 is going, listen, God tests, he sees, he knows, and he's opposed. He hates the wicked. He hates sin and hates the wicked who love sin. God, who got what God hates, he opposes. And what he opposes will not prosper or endure. You cannot be only opposed to God. You cannot be hated by God and prosper or endure. It may seem in, in the present that wickedness is unopposed, but be hopeful that God sees and is working against the wickedness until it is no more. God is holy. God is working. And then in verses six and seven, David declares God is righteous. He says in verse six, let him rain coals on the wicked. Fire and sulfur and scorching wind shall be the portion of their cup. Friends, the judgment of God is perfect. You might characterize verse 6 as a prayer for God to, to bring about judgment upon the wicked. It is a prayer and, as a, and a recognition of God's righteous judgment that is to come. Now it may seem... <laughs> unsettling to pray for or even desire for God's judgment to be poured out on the wicked. However, listen to me carefully here. The righteous and the perfect judgment of God is demonstrated in both the glory of heaven and, hear me carefully, God's, God's righteousness and perfect judgment is demonstrated both in the glory of heaven and the horror of hell. For Christians, who have the hope of eternal life in heaven, many of us think of the glory of God only in the context of the perfect righteousness of heaven. And that's right and good to think in that way because in heaven, the full glory of God will be known. We will spend all of eternity from day until day, from eternity unto eternity, basking in, rejoicing in, worshiping the glory of God. But we need to be mindful, friends, that hell is also a testimony to the perfect righteousness of God in his perfect judgment of sin. In other words, as glorious as heaven will be, hell will equally testify to the glory of God. Because hell is the perfect, complete, total punishment, condemnation, judgment over all things that are contrary to the glory and righteousness of God. Now, it's hard for us to imagine that because let's be honest. There are going to be some folks in hell at the judgment of God whom we loved this side of heaven. How can it be that we would rejoice in their condemnation of eternal judgment? And I believe the reason that will be is because in heaven we will be totally righteous in our understanding and our glorified bodies. We will love perfectly the things that God loves and God loves the glorification of the righteous and God loves the righteous judgment of the wicked. 
we naturally desire to move quickly to verse seven. I'm gonna talk in just a minute of the good and glorious promise of verse seven because it's hopeful. But verse six is equally declarative of God's glory. On the day of God's judgment, the saints will rejoice and glory as much in the judgment unto salvation and heaven as God's judgment of the wicked unto the condemnation of hell. In his condemnation and judgment, God's, God demonstrates his perfect righteousness and holiness. You do understand that if God did not work against the wicked, he would not be righteous. Hell is as much flowing out of the character and nature of God as heaven is. And so when we talk about the righteousness of God, it comes with the judgment of God. God is righteous, his judgment is perfect, and his promises are sure. Look at the last verse, verse seven. It's a good word. He says, for the Lord is righteous. Now, I, I, I would connect that to what he said in verse six. He's going to bring judgment upon the wicked because he is righteous. He says, for the Lord is righteous. And he, he loves righteous deeds. The upright, the righteous, in other words, shall behold his face. In the last verse, David concludes, for the Lord is righteous. God is, right, God is, God is righteous in his authority. He is righteous in his testing, both of the, of the righteous and the wicked. God is righteous in his judgment of the wicked. God is righteous in his salvation of the righteous. And the last part of verse six is a very hopeful promise. The upright shall, excuse me, the last part of verse seven is a hopeful promise. The upright shall behold his face. And notice with me for just a minute the contrast of verse seven with verse four. In verse four, it tells us that God sees to judge the heart of man. In other words, he knows the heart of the wicked and of the righteous. Verse seven is, 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 um, verse seven is uh, not what God sees, but what the righteous will see. Now, understand this, seeing has two meanings. In one way, to see means to know. So in, in verse four, it says God sees. In other words, it says he knows the reality of your heart. He knows if you're righteous or wicked. But to see also means to have access to. The seeing of verse four is that God knows. But the seeing in verse seven is to have access to the presence of God. The phrase is to see his face. It means to have access to God. Our own vernacular has many related phrases to this. If, if you're going to visit someone in, purpose, in, 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 in person, you may say, I'm going to see so-and-so. Or if you are communicating that you spent some time with someone, you might say, well, I've got to see them. We know that what that means. You're not, you're not simply telling us that you visually saw them. I can see you from across the street. But if I tell someone I went to see you, that meant I went and spent some time in your presence. We had a face-to-face -face meeting. To see the face of God is to be welcomed into his presence. Here's the glorious truth of this passage. The holy God who is in his holy temple and on his holy throne 
who hates and brings judgment to the wicked and tests the righteous will welcome the redeemed into his presence that in his presence they might be face to face. That's a good word, friends. The New Testament in 2 Corinthians chapter 3 says it this way, since we have such a hope, we are very bold. Not like Moses who put a veil over his face so that the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end. But their minds were hardened for to this day when they read the old covenant, that same veil remains unlifted because only through Christ is it taken away. Yes, to this day. Whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Now the Lord is the spirit and where the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all with unveiled faces beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed unto the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is of the spirit. In other words, friends, the hope of the New Testament is the hope of the Old Testament that the righteous made righteous through Jesus might come face to face in the presence to see the Lord because because he's already seen us, that we might be in his presence under glory, under glory, under glory. That's why David says, I take my refuge in the Lord. You likely don't know this name, Reginald Heber, but you know his work. Reginald Heber was born April the 24th, excuse me, April the 21st, 1783. He was educated, well-educated in England and would become an Anglican bishop. He was the first bishop of the Anglican church to be appointed to India and he went to Calcutta. Only three years later after moving to India, he died at the age of just shy of his 43rd birthday of a stroke. A relatively young man. A year later in 1827, a collection of hymns were published, 57 of which were from Heber's own pen that he had been collecting through his ministry. It was published in a collection of hymns titled Hymns Written and Appointed and Adapted to the Weekly Church Service of the Year. Each day, each calendar Sunday of the year had a, had a hymn. For Trinity Sunday, Heber had written a hymn using the text of Revelation 4.8, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. He used that text to write a hymn that you and I know as Holy, holy, holy. Though you may know very little about an Anglican priest that spent his last three years in India, you probably know his hymn very well. Because that hymn testifies so well to the foundational doctrinal truth of who God is. He is holy.
So my conclusion today, you're going to help me with. I want to sing holy, holy, holy. So would you stand with me? You are the choir, which means you better sing well. The words will be on the screen. If you can't read them in the screen, it's the second hymn or the first, actually the first hymn and the second number in the hymn book there in front of you. It begins like this. Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, early in the morning our song to Thee, holy, 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 merciful and mighty, God in three persons, blessed Trinity. Holy, 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 all the saints adore Thee, casting down their golden crowns around the glassy sea. Cherubim and seraphim, Falling down before thee, which word and art and evermore shall be. Here's a good one. Holy, 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 though the darkness hide thee. Though the eye of sinful man thy glory may not see, preach. Only thou art holy, there is none beside thee, perfect in power in love and purity. Now worship church. Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, all thy works shall praise thy name in earth and sky and sea. Holy, holy, yes, merciful and mighty, God in three persons, blessed Trinity.
Thank you for listening to All for the Kingdom, a weekly podcast of my preaching ministry. For more sermons, blog posts, and other related content, go to bensmithsenior.org. That's bensmithsr.org. I am the pastor of Central Baptist Church in Waycross, Georgia. I would love for you to join us this coming Sunday at 201 Ava Street here in Waycross. Our morning services begin at 1030 a.m. For more information about Central Baptist, go to cbcwaycross.org. Again, thank you for listening. And until the Lord returns, let us live each moment all for the King and all for the kingdom.